Welcome to the Cybersecurity Defenders podcast, episode number 50. My name is Christopher Luft. I'm one of the co-founders of Lehman Charlie, and I will be your host. On today's episode, we're going to be chatting with the one and only Matt Bromley about some cutting-edge intel coming out of the Lehman Charlie community Slack channel. Another week, another set of bad actors, malicious files, and compromised systems. Thanks for being here once again to talk about all the intel coming out of the Lima Charlie Community Slack channel. And as always, a huge thank you to those folks that care enough to share the information in the channel. Our little corner of the world is more informed and safer because of your efforts. And Matt, thank you for being here once again to share your expertise with us. I always happy to be here. It's great to get to reflect on some of the great stuff that's been happening inside of the channel. We've had a very, very busy couple of weeks as well. Some amazing releases, some interesting vulnerabilities, all sorts of stuff coming up. Yeah, as Matt mentioned, it's been very busy at Lima Charlie, and because of that, we missed the Intel chat last week. We were working towards launching our SecOps cloud platform, which is an idea that really encapsulates what we've been working towards at Lima Charlie for the last five years. It's an environment where many solutions can exist, not just as a collection of random tools, but as a series of cybersecurity solutions designed to interoperate in an unopinionated way where powerful systems can be put in place at incredible speeds, allowing defenders to adapt at the same speed as the threat actors. On July 19th, we hosted a LinkedIn Live event with several panels consisting of cybersecurity leaders from around the industry and talked about the advantages this approach brings. If you didn't get a chance to attend, we have a recording of the event hosted on our YouTube page, and I will link it in the comments. It's definitely worth checking out if you're interested in new ways to think about cybersecurity, and I'd love to hear anybody's thoughts on it. You can comment on the video, reach out on Slack, or email defenders at limacharlie.io. Yeah, Chris, I think uh, it was a very, very busy week. You called that out correctly. And for anyone who maybe didn't get a chance to catch us, I highly recommend checking out the recording. It uh, really, really gave really good insight. A bunch of different panels lined up. Gave some great insight into kind of what we're working towards here. And as Chris mentioned, it uh, gives you a chance to adapt and build at the same speed as the threat actors, if not even faster. All right, let's get to the intel. The first one up today comes to us from Cisco Talos, who discovered a threat actor conducting several campaigns against government entities, military organizations, and civilian users in Ukraine and Poland. Their conclusion is that these operations are very likely aimed at stealing information and gaining persistent remote access. Sounds like some APT action to me. The activity they analyzed occurred as early as April 2022 and as recently as earlier this month, demonstrating the persistent nature of the threat actor. Ukraine's computer emergency response team has attributed the July campaign to the threat actor group known as UNC-1151 as a part of the ghostwriter operational activities allegedly linked to the Belarusian government. The attacks used a multi-stage infection chain initiated with malicious Microsoft Office documents, most commonly using Microsoft Excel and PowerPoint file formats. This was followed by an executable downloader and payload concealed in an image file likely to make its detection more difficult. The final payloads included the Agent Tesla, Remote Access Trojan, Cobalt Strike Beacons, and NJ Rat. This one was really interesting for me in that the threat actor constructed some authentic-looking documents that would have been sent to some highly targeted end-users. Excel spreadsheets that look like payroll calculators for specific military units that appeared to come from the State Treasury Service of Ukraine. The spreadsheets contain legitimate macro code that has been modified to call malicious subroutines that start the infection process. When I read about stuff like this, it sinks in that cyber really is the fifth dimension of war. Imagine what kind of intelligence was behind crafting this attack. What do you make of the technical part of this infection chain, Matt? 
Yeah, this one, you hit the nail right on the head when you said targeted multiple times. And I think that's probably the most important takeaway. I mean, this is not a document that you just kind of send around the internet hoping that someone's going to grab a hold of it and maybe know what to do with it, right? There was a Polish fake VAT return form. There were, as you mentioned, military expense calculator sheets. I mean, these are, you know, real official documents that were modified not, you know, created by someone's imagination, but real official documents that were modified to contain malicious code. I think it just goes to show the amount of depth that went into planning this type of attack and going in for, you know, what what are our users or what are our victims going to click on? What are the types of things they're going to go after? So we saw this stuff embedded in, you know, Excel and PowerPoint file formats. There's obviously a double whammy there because not only do you get a format that people are used to, but you also get the benefit of having macros and code execution and oftentimes uh, on an allow list as well. So you get a chance to execute your code that way. You know someone's going to open it. And then you get into as well, you know, calculators for military units and things. And I find that to be a really interesting part about this attack. This is the type of document that everyone in that particular you know unit has to deal with in some way, shape or form. They've, they've got to submit their expenses or they've got to submit payroll. And I find it really interesting because when they go after payroll calculators, you're really targeting a very small subset of people. I mean, let's just hypothesize here for just a moment. How many people do you think process payroll in the specific military units that were targeted and will send emails that appear to come from the state treasury service of Ukraine. I mean, my point is we're not talking about one or two. We're probably talking about maybe dozens, but we're not talking about hundreds or thousands of people either. Very, very targeted in that sense. But also they know exactly who they were going for. They know exactly what they were going after. I also think the use of images was very interesting. Looking through this article and a hat tip over to Cisco Talos for sharing these images with us. These are vacation pictures. Right. These are vacation pictures of people like camping in the desert, visiting foreign lands. Uh, one of them looks like the uh, like the shoreline in Thailand or something. I mean, again, these are pictures that folks want to see. They're going to click on. They're going to open. They're going to want to view. Hey, look where I went on vacation last year. And I'd take a shot in the dark and guess these are probably common vacation locations for their targets as well. And I think that just solidifies the amount of research and the amount of reconnaissance that went into this type of attack. We mentioned before, how do I get my victims to click a certain thing or allow a piece of code to execute? And this is exactly how you do it. You send documents, you know, they're going to open pictures, you know, they're going to want to see, uh, you know, documents and things that, you know, are going to get past their kind of spidey sense filters, if you will, and likely get past AV as well. And then boom, now you've got execution ready to go. And it's, uh, it's a really, really targeted campaign and one that has a lot of intricate details behind it. Yeah, and you made an interesting point by pointing out that they were targeting very specifically the people that handle handle payroll. And when I think about the information those people would have had on their machines, it would have been the you know home address and names of all the people in the different military units. So definitely some malicious thought behind that. That's that's exactly the key focus here is who was targeted and what for. You know, and the other thing that I found a lot in my career as well is that folks who sit in payroll operations or in HR operations and things like that, they often have administrator privileges because they've got to have the ability to impact user accounts and close users out if need be, or you know, shut down accounts or isolate or quarantine accounts and things like that. Now, I'm not saying that's the case here, 
But I will say a lot of times folks who are in charge of processing payroll or are in charge of human operations or human resources typically have those rights. And, you know, the adversary might have just said, hey, I'm not going to go target the general who's maybe suspicious or doesn't even read their email. I'm going to target the person who might have equal rights, but is likely to open and read their email a lot more. And maybe that's the final little part here is they, they targeted what I'm going to call desk workers. Now, that's nothing wrong with that job, right? But it's and now I do not know for sure. I'm not an expert on Ukrainian military operations, but I would take a shot in the dark guess that person who processes payroll is, you know, definitely at war, but is likely in an office, is not, you know, on the ground firing at the front line while processing payroll on their payphone. And I'm not trying to be cheeky about it. I'm trying to indicate that they went after someone who they knew would be opening their computer, accessing these files. And Chris, as you mentioned, would have access to likely very particular sensitive data. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. It's scary stuff. All right. This one from Bleeping Computer. Apparently, cybersecurity vendor Sophos is being impersonated by a new ransomware as a service called Sophos Encrypt, with the threat actors using the company name for their operation. Discovered by Malware Hunter team, the ransomware was initially thought to be part of a red team exercise by Sophos. The article goes on to break down how the ransomware works uh, for the affiliate and how they would interact with it, which is interesting in itself, but I'm curious what the tactic is here. Why impersonate a cybersecurity vendor? Would this fool defenders or provide cover? Have you seen anything like this before? Well, interestingly enough, I, I think it worked because the people who found it first thought it was part of a red team exercise. <laughs> so it absolutely did what it was supposed to do, which is provide some sort of a cover. And I, I don't, again, I don't know the timing of this release, but I will say that let's say you find a piece of malware at 2 p.m. and you think it's part of a red team and it takes you until 5 p.m. to figure that out. Adversaries can do a lot in three hours as opposed to, hey, this looks like malware. We're just going to shut it down in the first five minutes. So I think at a minimum, it likely bought them more time than they would have otherwise had. The other reason for impersonating vendors or legitimate software is pretty consistent with why other adversaries do it as well. Likely to be on an allow list, uh, likely to execute, likely to have access to privileged things. Um, we've talked before about kind of bring your own vulnerable driver and things. So maybe you know, not in this case, but in other cases, introducing older versions of legitimate security software might have a vulnerability baked into it that you could take advantage of. Lots of reasons. And then, of course, there's also the uh, the human eye trick, which is there's an analyst somewhere who's just paged down and scrolling through a list of processes, seeing something like Sophos Encrypt, especially if they use Sophos, likely wouldn't ring any alarm bells, you know? And uh, they're, they're probably going to stop and say, oh, okay, that's Sophos. I'm going to keep moving on. And Again, even if they came back to it 10, 15 minutes later and were like, wait, something's not right here, the adversary still bought some time they wouldn't have otherwise had. I would also go as far as to say that if I got a spear phishing, or I shouldn't say me or you, Chris, but if someone got a spear phishing email that said, hey, this is Matt and IT, we just updated our AV software, please install this at your earliest convenience, and it's titled 495 I don't know if I'm double-clicking that thing. <laughs> However, if you send me something that's titled Sophos Encrypt, and I don't really know much about these, you know, security systems and whatnot, I might click on that. I'd, I'd say there's probably a couple of different things buried in there, buried in those intentions, if you will. But uh, nonetheless, fooling defenders is one that uh, I know every adversary group out there is trying to do. And even if it buys them a little bit of time, it's time they might not have otherwise had. Yeah. All right. Uh, I know everybody was happy about this next one from the mouth of Microsoft itself. Quote, 
In response to the increasing frequency and evolution of nation-state cyber threats, Microsoft is taking additional steps to protect our customers and increase the secure-by-default baseline of our cloud platforms. These steps are the result of close coordination with commercial and government customers and with the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, a.k.a. CISA, about the types of security log data Microsoft provides to cloud customers for insight and analysis. The TLDR on this one is that over the coming months, Microsoft is going to include access to wider cloud security logs for their customers at no cost. If you weren't aware, Microsoft was using this vital security feature as a paywall and have now decided that paywalling security features is not a good look. Through the course of your career, have you seen this paywall feature hurt businesses before? Is this going to make the job of defending organizations more affordable and make us all safer? Well, I certainly hope so. (laughs) For that last part of your question there, I hope it makes us all safer. No, I, I think this is a huge revelation when it comes to Microsoft logging, monitoring, audit policies, and things like that. I believe as part of the availability of logs, they're also increasing log retention timeframes from 90 to 180 days. They're really making some important moves. And look, I'll tell you, there are some key cyber attacks out there. Business email compromise, which we've talked about at length before and something I've been kind of a you know follower of for many years investigating hundreds of cases. It's one of those things where having longer audit logs at a lower Microsoft license level would have probably made the difference for a lot of organizations that are out there. So I I have seen it happen before where these types of logs have not been available. Just for anyone's reference out there, typically you need a minimum, or I should say prior to this announcement, you needed a minimum subscription level with Microsoft services uh, somewhere in the E5 or, or S5 range, whatever whatever the five or whatever the various letters are, it was at the five there. And that's where it opened up certain logging capabilities and audit policies and things like that. And they're making that wider available for folks who might actually need it. I have seen this happen before, Chris. I think it's something that we touched upon a little bit last week in our SecOps Cloud Platform discussion as well about features. You know, features like this shouldn't be paywalled. You know, it's, it's your data. You should have access to it. And if that data helps you protect your organization, you shouldn't have to pay more to get access to it. And let's be clear. The log data that's being made available here, this is data about an organization. It's being generated by that organization. This isn't data that's necessarily being enriched by Microsoft or added value to or anything. It's just simply availability in a lot of cases. And whilst I'm not throwing in mud because I'm glad that this is being made available, I will say I've been on far too many investigations where having these logs would have been a game changer. And I'm really, really happy to see it being made available now. And I will go a step further and I will say for all of you incident responders and SOC analysts and SOC operations and, you know, anyone in that blue team role who is listening to this, I, of which we know there are many, and we thank you all for being here. I would recommend evaluating your environment or your customer's environment's license levels, log retention capabilities. And this is, I think, where the industry has a chance to step up and say, hey, you're on an E3 license, for example, guess what? In the future, you're going to have better logging capabilities. Let's work on expanding that out. Let's work on getting that visibility in place. The nice thing here is if I'm a managed services provider, an MDR, MSSP, MSP, anything along those lines, I just got a brand new source of data for my lower tier Microsoft customers, which is great because now I'm going to say, hey, let's go turn these things on and let's include them. And guess what? I've now got the benefit to monitor your operations a lot more closely than I did before. 
and that, you know, license caveat is is now going to start to fade away. So huge hat tip for Microsoft. You just opened a lot of possibilities for a lot of folks, made it much harder for adversaries and defenders. When you see a big change like this come through, we've got to step up as well. You've got to make sure that you tell your respective customers that they enable things that they have the ability to enable now that they utilize them. Because the worst thing that we want to do is find ourselves in a spot where a security vendor made something available, but no one ever actually went to look for it. No one ever went to actually use it. So I think we've got a little stepping up on both sides here, Chris. Glad to see Microsoft kicked it off, though. Yeah, better late than never, and hopefully sets a precedent industry-wide that you know making security a paywall feature isn't isn't good for anybody. Exactly. Yeah. All right. Next one up, Checkpoint researchers are providing an analysis of a new malware strain dubbed BundleBot that is apparently spreading under the radar. BundleBot is abusing the .NET burner self-contained format that results in very low or no detection at all. Apparently, it is commonly distributed via Facebook ads and compromised accounts leading to websites masquerading as regular program utilities, AI tools, and games. The article didn't say anything about the attacker's motivation, but it feels like that opportunistic cybercrime, the sort of spray-and-pray model. The article does do a really great technical analysis and goes very deep. Was there anything in this one that stood out for you? I know there was a bunch of IOCs, but was there anything behavioral that defense could be built against? You know, I think the use of social media in this case, uh, as well as the like kind of AI based phishing attempt that went out there is, is something that we should be including in our defense as we go forward. You know, I, you could almost kind of tag this under something like trend detections or, you know, de- de- trend detection engineering or something along those lines, right? It took advantage of AI very heavily. So I believe the website was googlebardai.wiki. It was Google AI, or sorry, Google underscore AI dot RAR, launched Google AI dot EXE, which had Google AI dot DLL. I mean, they really, really pulled deep on that whole Google AI thing, but it pretended to be a marketing tool using Google AI's BARD. And I got to say, I think that this is going to be an attack vector for defenders to look out for. Again, you could file this one under trend analysis. Everyone's super, super hot about AI. And everyone's doing everything they can to get AI integrated into their lives as much as they can. And we're seeing folks, you know, download tools all over the place and get games and try to increase their productivity and enhance their lives and use the best chat GPT props and everything like that. However, it just is another area where we've got to watch out for potential malware, spear phishing, other types of malicious things to come down the road because adversaries are going to take advantage of any interest chain that they can to push malware down the line. So for this one, you know, again, a RAR, an EXE, a DLL, we've got a a bunch of zip files in there, some C2 traffic, very well-known malware. They do a great job in this one, hat tip to Checkpoint for walking through the reverse engineering of this. I mean, I love when they just kind of, you know, again, start out with about like, hey, here's how to use DN spy and IL spy and dot peak and things. I love seeing that type of technical knowledge. And this is a long article that breaks apart this malware really, really well. But again, from a defense perspective, you got to go down the road of watching out for trends, flagging things when they become a trend, and then watching for detections for those. And then also user education as well. There's another takeaway here, which is educating users on, hey, look, I know everyone's clicking AI stuff. Just because it says AI doesn't mean it's safe to read. Obviously, the same type of logic and uh, skepticism should apply, even if it is an AI-based tool that you think can help you. Got to be careful about what you're clicking and installing. Yeah, I agree with that 100%. This next one is 
I think in another emerging trend, and I'm quite worried about this one, Checkmarks is reporting the first known targeted OSS supply chain attack against the banking sector. Their research team detected several open source software supply chain attacks that specifically targeted the banking sector. These attacks showcased advanced techniques including targeting specific components and web assets of the victim bank by attaching Melissa's functionalities to it. The attackers employed deceptive tactics such as creating fake LinkedIn profiles in order to appear credible and customized command and control centers for each target, exploiting legitimate services for illicit activities. So if it wasn't clear there, these threat actors made LinkedIn profiles to make them look like credible developers, some of them even claiming to work for the banks they were targeting, and then were making commits to open source projects that they knew the banks were using in their software stack. This is another one to keep you up at night. All the malicious packages these researchers have reported and have been removed from the said projects But I'll bet you a dollar we see more and more of this, which really begs the question, how do we secure open source? Go take a look at how many NPM packages are in any given web application and how many of those are open source and run by small teams or volunteers. It's just a huge attack surface that I don't know if we have any good strategies for. Yeah, so there. this is something that I've done some research in and been involved with some discussions here. Um, I will just start by saying for anyone who's hearing this and thinking that they're like, you know, in, in no man's land or lost out here. There are some companies out there that do offer kind of package dependency analysis or supply chain based, uh, software supply chain based analysis and protections and stuff. And what they do is dig through the different packages that you're utilizing and then scale out kind of, you know, how deep do these go? What what libraries depend on other libraries and just how far does that go? And then they try to profile and give you that, you know, that software bill of materials, if you will, about everything that's included in there. I've done some work with a couple of these companies before. I remember one of them was telling me, Chris, that they analyzed some code that found 17 layers of libraries had been uh, pulled in for a particular application or for a particular web app. And it was just mind boggling to hear about some of these numbers. So you are 100% right, which is like, oh my gosh, how do we even go against defending against this type of thing, right? Especially when you've got cases like this, where adversaries went as far as to infect legitimate packages and drop in really well-designed payloads that identified, or not identified, but dropped in very unique HTML code, gave them a chance to kind of hook on to bank login and things like that, transfer those details to another location, subsequently load some C2 frameworks and things like that. I mean, really, really interesting the way all these kind of steps came together here. And I think that one of the things to be careful of here, and the article does call this out as well, that traditionally we focus on vulnerability scanning kind of at the build level. And I think going a little bit deeper towards kind of the package analysis is maybe a little bit of a better step to be taken. I'm not saying I have the automated answer to that right now, but it's got to be done at a little bit of a lower level or a deeper level, I should say. It can't be done just on the surface of, hey, am I vulnerable to a particular thing, you know? And at a minimum, having like an inventory of what is used by a certain application can just be the first step the first useful step of it. And I think back to, uh, it's been a couple of years now, but I think back to Log4j where, you know, lots of folks had vulnerable applications because they were using Log4j, not because they themselves were vulnerable. And I think it's important if, if I'm building software, understand the libraries that you're utilizing, what are you importing? So just in case there's something that pops up or a vulnerability, you can quickly look and say, oh, wait, I'm using this particular thing. Or I'm using a thing that uses a thing. So let me go ahead and um, apply patches or kind of remove that library if need be. But 
I think we're going to continue to see this be a problem for a long time, as long as we're leaning on open source software and open source libraries. And you're right. Uh, sometimes it's one or two volunteers kind of keeping these things going, and we can't expect them to catch and know every security vulnerability that's out there. So a huge thanks to those folks, but time for security teams to be a little, little bit more vigilant about the types of things that we're employing. And by the way, I don't mean you, the security team, need to be going and doing some manual scanning. I mean, talk to your developers and figure out a way that works for the entire organization. Yeah. Yeah. And it's definitely going to be something I think we see more and more of. Uh, I was just reading about some supply chain attacks where the attackers were trying to get into GitHub. And you think about the repercussions of having a persistence at GitHub where they could have access to different repos and just the exponential nature of how that maliciousness could move through so many different companies and products is is kind of mind-boggling. I would not want to be calculating those statistics. I'll tell you that much. Yeah. All right, Matt. It looks like it's a short and sweet one today. Uh, thanks for coming out again. Always a good time. I look forward to doing this again next week. Likewise. As always, Chris, huge thanks to you. And another huge thanks to those in our Intel channel in Slack or our Intel chat in Slack. Great having that insight in the channel to wake up to and check out during the day. And I appreciate it. We'll see you next week. All right. Take care. And that concludes episode number 50 of the Cybersecurity Defenders podcast. If you have any feedback or ideas for future topics, please send an email to defenders at limacharlie.io. You can access the intel we talk about on the show in real time and join the conversation on the Lima Charlie community Slack channel at slack.limacharlie.io. If you've enjoyed the show, please consider sharing it with someone or leaving a rating or review. And don't forget to subscribe on whatever platform you're listening from. Thanks for listening in. We'll see you on the next episode.